Hello and welcome to this episode of Genomics Unraveled, the educational podcast about the future of genomics in healthcare. I'm Lydia. And I'm Angela. And we're both medical students with Masters in Genomic Medicine. Today, we're really excited to be joined by Professor David Rowich. David is a paediatrician and developmental neuroscientist. He's Professor and Head of Department of Paediatrics at the University of Cambridge and Adjunct Professor of Paediatrics at University of California, San Francisco. His research has established genetic mechanisms that determine glial cell identity and heterogeneity during brain development and has provided insight into cerebral palsy and multiple sclerosis. His clinical research focuses on genomic technologies to diagnose rare neurogenetic conditions and gene and cell-based therapies for leukodystrophies. David is academic lead for the new Cambridge Children's Hospital, researching origins of pediatric physical and mental health conditions and preventative interventions within the NHS. He also holds numerous roles in the Academy of Medical Sciences, the Royal Society, and the USA National Advisory Council for Child Health and Development. David, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks very much, Angela. I'm looking forward to it. So it's clear from your bio that you've had a very long-standing interest in neuroscience and genetics, starting with a BA in cell biology and a PhD in biochemistry before going down the MD path. Can you tell us a bit more about how these degrees influenced your future work as a physician scientist? Yeah, as a, as a, a student who did an intercalated um, PhD, um, and I did that in the Department of Biochemistry in Cambridge, which was a fantastic place to be, um, also happened to be here when DNA sequencing was just being developed by Fred Sanger. So it was a really exciting time to think ahead to the role of genomics. And I think what persuaded me to do the dual degree was the lag time from a basic science insight to getting to patient care and thinking that if I have the dual skills, um, I could be sort of at that interface of translational research to accelerate um, impact to patients. And so then you trained in pediatrics at Boston Children's Hospital. What was it that drew you to this specialty? Uh, as you might know from being a clinical student, um, you kind of learn a lot about the direction of travel from your exposure to patients. Um, and I thought I was going to go into adult medicine, um, but just found myself much more drawn to pediatrics from my clinical exposure. And um, I think what I also was impressed by was the sort of the compelling nature of pediatrics, because often the child is um, subject to sort of forces beyond their control, genetic or environmental. Um, and so the cases you see in pediatrics are very compelling. Um, and it's a, it's a case where no room for cynicism. You know, you're always trying to do the best for that, for that child. Um, and, I, and I felt myself sort of drawn to that, that way of practice. Mm. Talking of medical students now, what would you like medical students to know about your field of work? Um, I think the, um, the, the more recent work um, that we've done in the Department of Pediatrics with the Department of Medical Genetics has really tried to look at the relevance of genomic technologies and tools to improve patient care. Um, so we know we can sequence the entire human genome, which is 6.4 billion base pairs. Um, is that a benefit or are there concerns and other, you know, uh, issues that need to be sort of debated before you would bring that technology into the clinic? 
Um, and the issues are complicated. But in pediatrics, um, we have made a very strong case. And when I, when I say we, it's more like the field um, through at least 20 studies now using whole genome or whole exome sequencing in intensive care. We find that about one in three or one in four children have a genetic condition. And I am a neonatologist, so I, I know that minutes matter when you're um, dealing with you know, the kinds of very sick children um, who have seizures or have other, other difficulties. Um, so now we know that this is a test. It's not a, it's not a research question anymore. It really is important to know the diagnosis and this can be often the fastest way to get to that diagnosis. Um, so now what I could say to the medical students of the future is, um, you should really um, start to understand genetics because it's gonna be part of your regular practice. And that is gonna be very clear in pediatrics. And I think the emphasis now from Health Education England is let's really focus on pediatrics and get people upskilled. Let's get students of today, junior doctors, more and more familiar and comfortable with dealing with genetics because you know, so many patients. Um, now in neurology clinic, um, pediatric neurology clinic, we find one in two children have a genetic condition. So there's no going back every pediatric neurologist is going to need to become an expert in genetics but so we need to we need to make that um, part of our training um, but the adult doctors can't hide either because um, everyone is going to get a genome and we're, we're probably thinking in 20 years from now there will be a new type of newborn screen um, and that will probably be a whole genome test um, i say in about 20 years because it's way too complex to deliver right now and we don't know enough um, but that means that, that from birth, we'll have that information available as physicians. We'll think about um, chronic conditions. We'll think about metabolic disease, cardiovascular disease, dementia, and the impact of genetics and vulnerabilities maybe combined with the environment that would create individualized health risks. And that's a message that goes way beyond pediatrics um, to pretty much all specialties. And, and we are now with colleagues like thinking about the hospital of the future, to what extent will genomics be, you know, embedded in a critical part of practice? That's where I think there's, um, you know, a message for all medical students is, uh, or all junior doctors to be, um, you know, you will start to see more and more of these genetic tests coming into your practice. Mm. And to try and keep up. <laughs> try to keep up. And then, you know, how does the system better support you? Because they are really complicated. I mean, I'm not a geneticist. I'm, um, I'm a neonatologist. I think it's important to demonstrate the benefits of genetics, but I can't give a genetic diagnosis. I need to rely on my colleagues and have really strong support from allied health professionals. So there will be a lot of infrastructure development to make it um, a lot less risky, um, de-risk it for the clinician to be able to feel well supported. Um, but I think all physicians like to understand the basis for the test and really be able to um, make recommendations um, based on their own personal knowledge. So I think we'll probably prefer to be experts in genetics, even recognizing that we'll have a lot of support from other, other even more specialized um, clinicians. Mm. Great. And as you mentioned, um, we'd like to talk a bit more about a study, one of these studies in um, neonatal and pediatric intensive care here in Cambridge, the Next Generation Children Project, um, which you were involved in. So this project showed that rapid trio whole genome sequencing um, improved the diagnosis of genetic conditions in these intensively ill children. Could you explain a bit more in lay terms what rapid trio whole genome sequencing is 
and how this led to improved diagnosis. Hmm. Um, so first of all, what is a TRIO? TRIO is the patient, in this case, a child or baby. Um, and typically their parents, it can also be sometimes a sibling. Um, and the reason that we, we, we wanna do kind of all three is that when we do a genetic test, and remember there's 6.4 billion base pairs of DNA, and there could be a lot of things that might be a little bit different, not necessarily abnormal or wrong, but they're just different. And a lot of those things that we would call variants um, will run in families. They relate to ethnicity. They may run in certain populations. You kind of want to be able to filter them out and not worry about them. So the best thing to do is use the parental DNA as your kind of filter. And then you look at what else is different if a child is sick and will that will those fewer things that come out of that filtering process now point you in the direction of a gene that actually will explain what the child's presentation is. Um, so that's that's important, but if you will, it also makes it three times more data, you know, because we're, 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 we're actually analyzing three genomes, not just one. Um, and why rapid? So we chose a project that had to do with intensive care. And so in many scenarios, you might not need rapid. Um, you might have, I don't know, you just sort of have, you might just be curious about some genetic things, but there's not really anything kind of that is um, time sensitive. Of course, that's different in ICU. It's different with a child that has seizures. Um, and so um, what time is right for getting the diagnosis? Is six months right? Nope, too long. Um, and is six hours right? No, too short. Because you know, the, you also have to think about the, the way that genetic information is handled by the physician. Um, many of us, including you know the three of us, we might have genetic mutations that we'll never know about. They, you know, I haven't had my genome done. Maybe there's a horrible surprise there, and I'd have this gene that looks terrible. Like you know, it sh I should have some problem, but I don't, and that's because there's variable penetrance. So you'd never make a diagnosis based on a gene finding alone. There are a few very rare exceptions like Huntington's disease that are always so penetrant, but there are very few like that, and most of the time you have a genetic finding. And then the question is, can you match it? So even if a baby was born um, and you had this genetic diagnosis right away, you wouldn't just sort of, or sorry, genetic finding, you wouldn't make that a diagnosis unless the clinical um, appearance of that child matched to the gene. Um, now that takes time. Um, and the, the other practical issue is, you know, the parents may not know about this and that takes time for them to understand and actually come to grips with what this all means. So even though I'm an intensive care physician and I want to know the answer probably as soon as possible, um, I don't want to know it six hours after the baby's born. I might want to know about six days after the baby's born. In that time frame, you know, the baby's been in ITU. Uh, we might understand that they are, you know, very seriously ill and requiring extraordinary life support. They have a genetic finding that explains that. And that genetic finding might either point direction towards a new treatment or indeed could even point, tell you that, this is a fatal condition and that, you know, maybe more is not the right thing to do. It, it all will, those are some of the discussions that would need to be had, but with the benefit of actually understanding the needs of that child, because you've been taking care of them, the family has been part of that journey, they see what's going on, and the staff also, because staff will not, you know, um, make a decision unless all the information is in. So I think rapid is a practical assessment. Um, and there, there are some conditions where minute, where you really do want to make a decision re really quickly. 
there are very few of those. There are a few metabolic conditions where you would make some changes in management and knowing something sooner rather than later is good. Um, the majority of genetic conditions that you might diagnose, I think between five days to about 10 days, gives the clinician the right window to be able to interpret and feedback to family and come up with you know, good decision-making. Um, and that's what we're aiming to do, uh, very much try to fit it into practice. At the same time, there are other um, units where they're going for much faster turnaround times within 24 hours, or even you might've seen from, um, from Stanford, there was a nine hour genome that was done. Yeah, they just broke the world record for the fastest whole genome. So if you wanna get the Guinness Book of World Records, you know, you do that sort of thing. But is that practical? Is that what we're, what we're aiming for? Um, you know, I think, again, thinking about even the most acute situ situation like neonatal ICU, um, I would feel uncomfortable with, with, with just having a genetic test result without the time to really understand whether the baby is, you know, is indeed as sick as you might be worried about. What if they're not? What if they're actually doing way better? Are you gonna make some life-changing decision based on genetic finding alone? So I, I think that's where we, we've kind of landed on around five days or so as being optimal, but we'll be, we'll be testing that with colleagues and we'll, we'll be seeing how practice changes. That's super interesting to think about it on the time scale of um, a neonate's early life. Thinking a bit more broadly then, the Next Generation Children's Project showed that true whole genome sequencing is feasible within the NHS setting and that the overall diagnostic yield is relatively high, as, as you said earlier, like one in three, one in four. Um, and so since the study's publication in 2019, what impacts of this study have we seen since so far? That's a great question, Lydia. Um, I mean, the study was set up by my colleague, Lucy Raymond in medical genetics, and she's a very seasoned you know, expert. And we set it up intentionally to reproduce a NHS clinical pipeline with all the steps of having been processed in the, in the regional genetics lab and you know, interpretation and multidisciplinary team reporting back to the clinician, really to try to mimic a, 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 an accredited pa pathway. That made it very easy for the NHS to look at what we had done and then stand up a service um, so that within six months of the paper being published, there was a national service for um, genome testing in NICU-PICU. Um, and that is remarkable from my point of view. Um, I think it's because Lucy knew exactly how to um, provide the confidence to the Department of Health and Social Care and um, you know, Dame Professor Sue Hill, who's the Chief Scientific Officer of the NHS, really gets credit for sort of taking the decision to move this forward rapidly. Um, and um, I think um, it was also in keeping with just sort of, you know, the government's extraordinary level of provision of genetic um, tools in the UK, which exceeds pretty much any other country, that we were almost sort of pushing on an open door. I think, I think the NHS was waiting for an example of where these genetic tools could help. And our study was just, you know, conveniently well-timed to fit that um, priority. Um, and so we, we saw very interesting, like, you know, reflected in the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, reflected in statements from um, Sue Hill that, you know, this was like an early win for genetic medicine. It was going to show benefit. Now, when we say benefits or when we say, you know, what does diagnosis do for a child who's in ICU, um, if, you, if you look at the you look at it on a case-by-case -case basis, in almost every case it changed care in some way or other. Um, uh, because at the very least, 
um, they're very kind of complicated cases. And when there's complications, doctors do a lot of tests. Um, if that goes on for ages and ages, it's called something that it's called the diagnostic odyssey. And for people who have rare disorders, um, and that um, rare diseases, there are about 3.5 million people in the UK with rare diseases. Those are monogenic disorders. Um, it often takes years for them to become diagnosed. Um, and this is a test that mitigates that whole odyssey. So one of the things that we, we could measure and show is we decrease invasive testing, we, de we decrease the amount of testing. In some, in some cases, there may be pregnancy counseling because we could tell whether there was an inheritance of a gene and that could be a benefit to the, the, the parents or the family. In some cases, we could change drugs to tailor them more to um, address the genetic condition or reduce side effects um, once we knew what the gene diagnosis was. And in some cases, we made decisions just about the, you know, the level of heroic life support that, that would be um, used you know, in the setting of of, of what, what could be a permanent um, and maybe incurable genetic condition. So you can kind of trace back, in the paper we said it was 75% of the time that it changed management, but that didn't include the mitigation of diagnostic odyssey, which is almost implicit in the test. Um, so it almost changes care every single time. Now we're going on to test this, and again, this is where there'll be a lot of other assessments being made. Is it actually, like people might even say, is it cost-effective? It's not a term I exactly like, but. What I do like about the, the, this, the notion is that you may be bringing in a, a whole range of specialists, but once you know the genetic diagnosis, you restrict that um, to uh, you know, the key ones, or you think of ones that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise be, because you can now anticipate the problems much better. Um, so I think that's another example of effectiveness, um, how the, how the specialized multi-specialty support can be organized. Oh, that's really, really fascinating to hear. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I think currently um, in the NHS through the Genomic Medicine Service, it's whole exome sequencing in newborns and paediatric intensive care units that's um, been offered over the last few years. Um, and I think the most recent stats are from May last year, where there'd been over 500 referrals and of which 37% of patients had received a genetic diagnosis. And so I guess that's the end of all the other big impacts that you were just talking about. So I'm sure that that overall stat will be much, much higher. Um, how does using whole exome sequencing in these settings actually practically differ from using the whole genome sequencing that you use in next generation children? Uh, another good question, Lydia, and, and hotly debated um, because whole genome is more expensive than whole exome. So what do you get? Um, whole genome is sort of a one-stop shop. Um, it will tell you things that you don't see on the exome, like mitochondrial mutations. Um, it's much better telling copy numbers. So if you have um, those kinds of changes where there might be, let's say, duplications or something of a gene, whole genome much better than whole exome. Um, and then there are structural variants, which means translocations and other things that happen out. The exome does measure just the exons. It's just measuring the sort of the genes, if you will. And then there's all the stuff in between the genes, which doesn't get registered. Uh, whole genome picks that up. Um, so some of those structural variants will re involve recombinations between genes, and you just wouldn't pick that up by whole exome sequencing. Um, so genome, you know, used to be slower, used to be a lot more expensive. As those differences, you know, are, are reduced, the argument for exome is going to, it just gets weaker and weaker. In, in the UK, you know, the government has decided, and the NHS has decided to do genomes, so we don't even think about it anymore. But in, in other countries, um, it's mainly exomes. Here for that R14 rapid um, NICU-PICU pi pipeline, 
it is exomes because they they were not ready to, to to do genomes we're still working with our um genomic laboratory hub in cambridge to now sort of um scale that to be a, a genome not an exome and we're working to now kind of fully realize the next generation uh, whole genome pipeline here as an exemplar to other regions um, and part of the reason we're doing that is that we're now looking at what diagnoses we would have missed with exome alone versus genome. And, you know, one example uh, would be babies that have a hypotonia. Um, so just very, you, you can easily imagine like some babies are floppy when they're born. Now, what's surprising is that once you rule out trisomy 21, again, another, it's one cause of hypotonia, but usually recognizable because of the, because of the typical facies and, and other, you know, kind of exam features. So you've clinically ruled out trisomy 21, and now you have floppy baby, what's the chance of a genetic diagnosis? Um, and we found that 50% of them have a genetic cause. Again, really so different than the way that I was taught when I was, you know, um, training in neonatology, because what you'd always do for babies like that is you just say, well, let's give them a lot of support and let's just see they're going to get better. Well, you know, probably 50% of the time they did get better. Um, but then some didn't, and now we know why, you know, like they have a condition, they have something affecting their neuromuscular functioning, or central brain functioning, spinal cord or, or whatever, muscle, um, and that's why they're floppy. Um, and we found of those kids, 50% had a genetic condition, and we would have missed 15% of those if we'd done exome versus genome. So the genome is, is better, and we're going to probably start to see many other cases where it's just like like, why would you do another test? It's better, it gives you more information, it comes to a much larger range of conditions. Um, so I think that's where uh, I'm glad that we're, we are sort of settled on, on, on doing genomes. Mm. Amazing, and yeah, talking about looking into the future for the NHS, you are the academic lead for the new Cambridge Children's Hospital. Um, and could you tell us a little bit more about your vision for this? Um, well, I think the vision for the Cambridge Children's Hospital is to try to get all the best ideas in the world and put them into one hospital. So it's really, it's really great. I mean, it's a, in fact, that was, the, that was the challenge that was put to us by um, the former vice chancellor. Um, said like, you know, what's the big idea in pediatrics? Um, and um, why should Cambridge deliver that? How can Cambridge deliver that? Why should we support it? Um, so it's a really excellent challenge for an academic. Um, it turned out we had two answers. Um, one of them, I'll, I mean, one of them is genetics, which um, I'll come back to, but I think there was another one that was even in some ways better, which was why do we separate physical and mental health care? Um, why is it that a child with a mental health problem goes to CPFT in Fullborn and a child with a physical health problem comes to CUH in Cambridge? And then let's say it's a child with an eating disorder who has a physical health complication and is now transported from Fullborn to Cambridge. And then it's being treated by a physical health team that doesn't have upskilled staff for mental health. So these like inefficiencies and poor care because we're not joined up. Um, and you can go on to think of many, many, many examples. And we're starting to see this now as we've essentially started to change our approach to care with Department of Psychiatry to say, we are gonna work together. We're gonna develop a new fully integrated model of, of physical mental health care. And Cambridge Children's will be the first hospital in the world that's purpose-built to support a new model of care. And what that anticipates is 
that the pediatric ward of the future will have mental health patients, physical health patients on the same ward next to each other. Of course, there may be some safeguarding issues and you need to keep some in you know, more secure areas fine, but we're really gonna try to remove the stigma. We're gonna remove the labels um, because it's actually very hard to, 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 to say you have a pure mental health problem or you have a pure physical health problem. A child with cancer, it's hard to really um, convince anyone that they don't have vulnerability to anxiety or depression. And we can easily imagine why they might. And it's much better to anticipate that they might because you can support them and you sort of know, it sort of almost suggests you appreciate how difficult that is for the child or family. You're not sort of waiting for them to de decompensate before you provide support. You're anticipating they need the support. And you can imagine it's a much better, more holistic approach. Um, now for training junior doctors, and if we have allied health, allied health professional colleagues who also have that upskilled approach, um, you know, they're gonna be that much more comfortable in taking care of problems, a range of problems. I mean, a child with self-harm will have physical health problems. Should they be in a mental health facility without pediatrics? No. And you can just sort of see there's so many examples. Um, and so that is one thing that the Children's Hospital will be known for is CPFT, CUH now joining together, co-locating, co but also co-managing. And, and, and if you do some pediatrics rotations at Addenbrooke's, you'll see psychologists and psychiatrists on our wards um, embedded in the team. And that is, uh, a, that's, a, that's the future. You, I mean, you'd almost say like, really, you don't do it that way already? It's so obvious, it makes so much sense intuitively. And it happens nowhere in the US, it happens nowhere around the world. So that's gonna be a very exciting part. That, that's a, that will be a cultural transformation to get psychiatry and pediatrics kind of working closely together. And the second is that, you know, we've convinced ourselves, and this is Cambridge where, you know, um, you know Rosalind Franklin from Newnham College um, came up with the first um, oriented fiber X-ray diffraction image of what DNA looks like. Um, and then that data was, you know, arguably um, appropriated by Kirkland Watson. <laughs> um, and um, um, then we have DNA structure, and then we have Fred Sanger, who then comes up with DNA sequencing, and then um, Shankar Balasubramanian and Paul Klenerman, who then make that practical to analyze at large scale. Um, and all of that's happening right in our backyard. So, like, why wouldn't we be the leader in genomics? It's kind of like we'd have to sort of make that counter argument. Like, we're we're so anti-genetic, we're not we're going to put our head in the sand. We're not going to we're not going to incorporate it in the children's hospital. So, of course, on the contrary, we are, you know, um, we are going to try to be a, a leader. Um, and I think we can also um, kind of imagine now that this diagnosis question will become sort of boring. Um, I, I shouldn't use that word because it sounds cynical, but by boring, I mean, we will have done it. It will be standard. We will just be doing genomic diagnosis. It won't be a real you know, challenge to do it anymore. The challenge is gonna be, what do, how do we change care? You know, what, what, so, you know, it's like, so what? You have a genetic diagnosis. The parents want to know, the, the patient wants to know how you are going to help them either through repurposing medicines, gene therapies, um, potentially even psychological resilience, you know, depending on the nature of the problem. It could be, it's not a medical intervention, it could just be an intervention that is, you know, beneficial um, and is tailored to that, to that individual. Um, and that will be the challenge. So I think when we think about the genomic medicine in the children's hospital, we're thinking towards therapies, we're thinking towards you know, how this, how this information can now be used to restructure care. 
Um, and, um, and so we will, I should mention, have research in the hospital. So this will be another USP of the hospital is to have uh, a research, a children's research institute within the hospital. The front door will be for patients, clinicians, and for researchers. So everyone's going to be bumping into each other. I think it'll be a really exciting environment where you have conversations um, that wouldn't happen otherwise. Um, again, you know, the investigator who's seeing the patients, the impact of their research will be really clear. And I think it's going to be inspiring for, for the researchers to be in that environment. We also want to really be in a position to also welcome in other disciplines to children's health, not just pediatrics, but also a range of disciplines across the biological school. Um, there are a lot of interesting legal, philosophical, um, psychological issues. Um, so we want to also be a conduit to sort of enable research from across the university to come in. So if, if we can deliver that, it's almost like um, this hospital is going to be very special because it's taking the power of Cambridge and it's putting it, you know, to, you know, it's, it's putting into focus the needs of children. And I think that has to have kind of an, a good outcome. Mm, wow. Yeah. What an exciting note to end on. Thank you so much for speaking to us today on Genomics Unraveled. Thanks, Angela and Lydia. It's really nice speaking with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Genomics Unraveled. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and to share with anyone you think might be interested. We'd also love to hear what you think, so please do get in touch with us via our Twitter at Genomics Unravel or email us on camgenomicmedsoc at gmail.com. We hope to see you again soon on another episode of Genomics Unraveled. Mm -hmm.